Acts 2, the, the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost. And a noise like a violent rushing wind comes from heaven, and it fills the entire house where the early church is praying there together. And tongues which look like fire, they appear and they distribute themselves, and a tongue rests on each one present in that, in that house. And they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak with, with different tongues as the Spirit is giving them the ability to speak out. It's the Spirit who's doing the work. Jesus is getting the glory. And the Holy Spirit is at work. And what happens, evidently they pour out into the street because there are onlookers, there are devout Jews from everywhere, and they watch this occurrence. And they are amazed and perplexed. And, and there are accusations made by these onlookers against the early church with this spiritual outpouring. They think that they're drunk. And Peter, as we saw last time, he, he, he gives the onlookers an explanation and a defense in the form of a sermon. When I'm preparing to speak before a group of people, I consider my audience. A sermon which I will bring before the church would be different than a sermon I might bring before folks at the funeral home in town. They'll have a lot of the same content, but it, it's not going to be the exact same type of service. I consider my audience. I am attempting to make a connection with my audience. And some basic things to consider when one is speaking to a group are things we learned in grammar school. The, the who, the what, the where, the when, <laughs> the why, the how. What am I attempting to communicate? Who, who is listening? My audience is whom? What is their relationship to the subject of, of which I'm speaking? And keeping in mind the whom. This crowd facing Peter in Acts 2 is made up of primarily Jews. It's a crowd. Many who are in town for this religious festival of Pentecost 50 days after Passover... And many are there because they know they need to be. They were raised in it. They were raised going to temple, so they know that's the right thing to do. They can see some positives in being a part of it. They understand the, the heritage. They, they go to temple. And, and many probably even pray to Yahweh. Many are sincere. Peter has just told this crowd about Jesus. Who Jesus is and, and what man did, the crucifixion, and what God did, the resurrection. That was last time. And, and, and Peter said, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man you nailed to a cross and put him to death. But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter knows his audience. These devout Jews, they recognize the historical figures of the Jewish faith. If one is a part of the Jewish faith, they know the fathers of the faith. They know of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they know these, these persons in their faith heritage. And one of which is, is King David. King David, long dead, 
by this point, is still the political figure and memory around whom they rally. Similar in these days to having a political figure who many folks follow. At what name do all of these Jews still stand to attention many years later? Their favorite earthly king of many years past, King David. Peter knows to whom he's speaking, and as a public speaker, someone who studies the art of communication, I think it is absolutely brilliant where Peter goes next. He quotes words from King David. There in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, Peter is quoting one of David's psalms, Psalm 16. For David says, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says this. He quotes David and he says, Brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the ruler David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. David is dead. David is long dead. But even as David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to David, sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, what? Sounds weird to us, but it didn't sound strange to his audience. What is this oath of which Peter is speaking? Did the Lord actually swear an oath to David? Yes. Yes, he did. The Lord made a covenant with King David many years before. In 2 Samuel 7... The Lord says this to David. He said many things, but this is how he caps it off. He says, I will raise up your descendant after you. When you are buried with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant who will come after you, and I will establish his kingdom. Matter of fact, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who is this descendant of whom the Lord is speaking to David? And who is this descendant of, of whom Peter is speaking to this crowd of Jews? It's Jesus. Jesus, the son of David. And Peter goes on to say, David looked ahead way off into the future and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that Jesus was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. David's been in the ground a long time. But Jesus has not suffered decay. It is this Jesus whom God raised up. The reason Jesus did not suffer decay, God raised him to life. Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, since he has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, 
He has poured out this Holy Spirit event of which you are seeing and inquiring. You both see it and you both hear it. Peter keeps going about David. He says, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, and he quotes one more psalm of David. He says in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, sounds strange to us, but it is about authority and dominion and kingship. David is talking about God the Father and God the Son. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand as the heavenly king. The Lord is the heavenly king. And and David, King David, the famous earthly king, recognizes the one from the Lord who would be even greater than himself. Jesus, the, the heavenly king. Peter makes this connection for his audience. He makes this connection, and then he says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says all of this. What he's doing, he's... Peter is using fact and data to prove to these, this Jewish crowd the identity of Jesus, the fulfillment of why Jesus came as Messiah. In his Psalms, in David's Psalms, David connects himself to Jesus. And this enables this Jewish crowd to make the realization of Jesus as the prophetic fulfillment of what David said years, years, and years before. And the crowd makes the connection. Aha! Light bulbs go off. What happens? Look at 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, they realized their spiritual kinship with these apostles, brothers, what are we to do? They realize who Jesus is and they realize what they've done to Jesus and they are pierced to the heart. So Peter says there in 38, repent. Mm. Repent. Turn from sin. Exactly what Jesus had said when he first arrived on the scene in Matthew chapter 4. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn from sin. And then Peter tells them, as well as telling us in 2021, how to respond once we make the connection to who Jesus is for us. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus forgives sins. This comes first. And sometimes there's confusion. Baptism does not forgive sin. Jesus forgives sins. Amen. And this comes first. Baptism does not forgive sin, but baptism shows 
obedience to Jesus. And this idea of in his name, that means belonging to him. If you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you belong to Jesus. And baptism is symbolic of the death of one's old life and the raising of a new life of obedience to Christ. Peter says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Paul, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives at the moment of salvation when we confess both our sin and our need for Jesus' forgiveness. And the gift of the Holy Spirit, two aspects of, of which are, are peace and guidance. Famous words of Jesus at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. What did Jesus himself promise? I am with you always to the end of the age. Unto forever I am with you. Peter says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. See, this promise is for all to come to Jesus. All who would hear and, and follow his call. Whether it's this audience of devout Jews, or it's a group of pagan Gentiles from foreign lands, whether it's first century Jerusalem or 21st century Virginia, salvation is available to all who would listen to the call of the Lord God to turn from sin. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Peter's been preaching. Peter continues to preach, and then he preaches some more. Woo! Pack a lunch. He ain't done. Be saved from this perverse generation. Boy, there's just nothing new under the sun, is there? So what happens well, there's a response to the call of God. 41, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. It's the first recorded response to the first sermon preached in the New Testament church. That's a pretty good altar call, 3,000 confessed sin and had sin forgiven. 3,000 were baptized and added to the church of the Lord. A connection was made to this new body of Christ. And this is what the church then did. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There was teaching. They were being discipled by the apostles, these first-generation witnesses of Jesus who walked with Jesus. The, the early church is learning the ropes of following Jesus according to the Scriptures. They had the Old Testament. Christ is the fulfillment of, of, of the prophetic writings. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. That's what they used. The Law and the Prophets. Those are the words of God which they trusted. There was fellowship and, and the breaking of bread. Re regardless of social class, all these were now connected as equals. They, they would associate together, and they would be associated with one another in public. And there's a difference between the two, isn't there? They associate together, but then everybody knows that they associate together. 
There's the breaking of bread together. There's a certain degree of intimacy in sharing a meal, isn't there? Watching someone eat. And saving the best for last, prayer, seeking the will of the Lord. And this is what the early church did. Teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. This is what the early church did and and should be a model for the church now. What are the bookends? Teaching and prayer. A lot of good stuff in the middle there. The Oreo of church. You got all that good cream in the middle, the fellowship and the breaking of bread, but what's it surrounded by? Teaching and prayer. Luke tells us everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all the believers were together, and they had all things in common, and they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that, that anyone had, had need. The, the, feeling, the feeling had to be electric. Can't, can't you just imagine? What's going to happen next? What would the Lord do next? Who might the Lord bring into the church next? How exciting thinking about who might hear the gospel and who might show up and who might get saved and who might be a part of the fellowship. There were signs and wonders taking place. And if you remember, Jesus himself said that the disciples would do greater things than Jesus. And in John chapter 14, Jesus said that the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. The original group of the 120. And then the 3,000 added on the afternoon of the day of Pentecost. As popular vernacular would state, they they were rowing in the same direction. They were on the same page. You know, I hope that the 120 weren't intimidated. You'd think, wow, all, all these people, wow. But I bet they weren't afraid of losing their influence, you know. That fear can happen sometimes, I guess. New, new blood can be intimidating, but they were all together with one mind. This, this thing about selling and sharing, there's a lot of discussion that we see around verse 45. Questions like, do we have to sell everything and, and live in a commune? And, and the Bible teacher, Howard Marshall, says that what actually happened may have been that each person held his goods at the disposal of the others whenever the need arose. Day by day continued with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. This attitude and posture with one mind, it comes to define the church. There were no cliques. Gladness and sincerity of heart. I love that. Not, not forgetting so quickly what it felt like to be lost and, and unforgiven. I think sometimes we forget what it feels like to be lost. We forget what it feels like to not be saved or not be forgiven. There was gladness. Gla- gladness, you know, gladness, gladness comes from gratefulness. Gratefulness for what the Savior has done. Grateful to be forgiven. And sincerity of heart, you know, motives weren't questioned. 
They're praising God and they're having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, the church is praising God that all this stuff is happening, all these new faces, all these... Whew, the church had favor with all the people. There was respect. The reputation of the early church was not questioned. The testimony of the church at this point was untarnished. And the Lord added to their number daily. Mm. Those who were being saved, these were all new converts. The takeaway, I, I think, there was an expectation that God would do some wonderful God-sized things. I wonder, do we, do we share similar expectations? Do we look for, do we pray for those around us to, to make a connection to the gospel? How might we respond if 3,000 showed up? How might we respond with gladness and sincerity of heart? It all begins with the hearts of you and me. Do we long to make a connection to the things of God? Do we long to make a connection to the cross of Jesus? You see, that's the beginning of the journey for each one. And when we revisit the connection to the cross, we remember again how it feels to be lost. How it feels to not have hope. And we're able again to remember why Jesus came and the reality that Jesus is still offering the same amazing, undeserving grace for us. He still offers it today. Do we long to make that connection?